What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another live stream. My name is Ansel Leonard. This is Bitcoin and Markets. So today, just going to talk about GBDC and Digital Currency Group, uh, the price and some charts, and then I have an article on China. And then also, I think I'm going to touch on the Texas Bitcoin work group, not working group, it's a work group. Uh, go over a few of those things that, that's happening in Texas and I am simulcasting onto Twitter Spaces. Hopefully, it does not crash on me today. We'll see how that goes. So today is Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. Hope you guys are doing well. Crazy times we live in. Crazy, crazy times. I know I said we are going to start DCG, but let's start with the price. So right now, um, Bitcoin did have a tiny, tiny little bounce this morning back above 16,000. I'm going to go down to the hourly chart. And post that in the Telegram group. Also, for people listening on Twitter Spaces or on uh, the podcast, if you guys go to uh, BitcoinAndMarkets.com and you look for this episode. So this is going to be episode 268, I believe. So if you go to BitcoinAndMarkets.com forward slash E268, then you can find all the charts for this episode. So that one I just posted is the Bitcoin chart. You can see a little bit of a rally. Um, I mean, I don't really have much to say about the Bitcoin chart. There is still no strength, even though we did have a little bit of a bump here. Uh, this is nothing that is makes any difference whatsoever. I would like to see us, you know, the very next level on that chart that we would need to break to be at all bullish would be that blue line and so we need to get pretty much up to 16,800 so we're still a long way from any sort of sign of reversal uh, there is still massive FUD out there which we will get into when we talk about um, GBTC and uh, the digital currency group but otherwise in macro here I'll post a few other charts we have the dollar the dollar is still significantly off the highs does not look like it's it's down today it doesn't look like it's going to regain its highs anytime soon and this continues on with my thesis on the dollar and macro in general the stock market uh, is having a nice green day today i saw a few posts on twitter talking about that this looks like a classic bull flag I don't think it's perfect, but it is uh, looking a little bit like a bull flag here. And if the stock market goes up, that should have a positive influence or at least be a positive uh, sign that Bitcoin, the pressure in the Bitcoin price should be to the upside as well. Okay, so that was a stock market. Let's take a look. Take a look at oil. Oil did bounce significantly off the bottoms yesterday that I was raving about. If you guys uh, tuned in yesterday, I was raving about how oil hit a yearly low, at least the lowest it's been since the first trading day of the year. I think it was on January third was the first trading day, uh, and so we hit a new fresh low, um, and that is in the face of what everybody has been spewing about the oil price that we're going to 200 300 a barrel you know we have the strategic petroleum reserve won't be you know the 
the drain that we've seen will end with the election. We see OPEC cutting back on its quota. Uh, of course, we have Russia and all of its supply pretty much coming offline. So a lot of people uh, have been fudding about this oil and oil price. And the whole time I've been saying, no, we there's fundamentals in the market that are going to keep the price of oil down at least for the foreseeable future. So we'll see. So far, I've been correct. And all the fear mongers that are talking about $300 a barrel oil have been incorrect. And I will note Zoltan Posnar, some of the biggest names out there, Luke Groman, influencers and uh, not just influencers, but macro experts that have been saying like $200 a barrel oil, while I have been saying, no, 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 the oil has peaked. Actually, when we had Luke Groman on FedWatch, it was the day, I believe it was either the day of the top or the day after the top. And on that show, I was like, well, what if oil has peaked? And that was the top back in March. Pretty crazy. Let's look at the 10-year. 10-year is red on the day as well, sitting at 3.76%. And remember, the bottom of the Fed funds range is 3.75%. So it is still in the range. Uh, we'll see how this goes for the next couple weeks before the FOMC meeting. Of course, my theory here is that if these rates continue to fall into the FOMC, they have no choice but to pause, just like 20, January 2019. All right. Should I post this one? Yeah, I'll do that. Let me just clean up some of these labels. All right. I'll post this. All right. There we go. That's for Telegram. What other charts do we have here? Um, of course, the euro is above par. It's sitting pretty much right at 103 the, the pound has had a major rally back up to 119. The Japanese yen has uh, sold off a little bit in the last couple of days, but, you know, it's still significantly off of its weakest point. The Hong Kong dollar uh, hit all the way down at 7.8, 7.80. And remember, the pegged range for the Hong Kong dollar is 7.75 to 7.85. When it is at the higher end of that, that means there is pressure on the Hong Kong dollar from a strong U.S. dollar. When it's at the lower end, it means the opposite, that the dollar is weak relative to the Hong Kong dollar. Well, what we've seen over the last several months is really being pinned right at the top of that range. And so they've had to uh, be selling their reserve dollars, U.S. dollars, and buying Hong Kong dollars to try to maintain that peg. Well, in the last week and a half, pretty much, it has really the pressure within this currency pair, which is an extremely, I think, signal-dense currency pair for Eastern Asia. Um, it has come off of the top, and right now it's it's sitting right in the middle of this range. So that means that there's not an over, you know, excess of strong dollar pressure or strong Hong Kong dollar pressure. Uh, it is, it's right in the middle of this range. And that goes towards looking back at the DXY, even though the Hong Kong dollar is not measured in the DXY. Um, you, <coughs> excuse me, you can see that there is, uh, the dollar stress has been relieved, right? And the DXY has come down as well as the Hong Kong dollar sitting in the middle of its peg right now. So, um, 
that's good for Bitcoin. Yesterday, I went through one of the charts and I posted it. Uh, so that's episode 250. Oh, what did I say? 267. So if you go to bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash E267, uh, you can find that chart that I had yesterday on Telegram. And it is of Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin with the DXY and zoomed way out on the weekly chart. And I highlight periods where the DXY was range bound. And what happened to Bitcoin during these range bound periods? Well, Bitcoin rallied like crazy 2012 2013 and then again 20 uh late 2015 into 2017 bitcoin was or do, the dollar was range bound and bitcoin really rallied during those times so if we are entering another range bound period for the dollar uh that leads to uh, a good environment for bitcoin to rally now why is that exactly i mean the dollar is so entrenched around the world that the minute uh, there is some dollar weakness, a lot of players, a lot of big money, they, you know, they've gone through a period of stress and probably liquidation of some of their assets and uh, putting pre lots of failure out there, you know, actual bankruptcies and defaults and things. So I hope I'm coming through on Twitter spaces. I've had trouble with them the last couple of days. And anyways, um, so there's all this stress out there in the dollar. And then when that stress gets relieved, the, the market takes a breath and it reloads up on dollar denominated debt. It's like, okay, the party's back on. We survived. Now let's expand. Let's go back at it. Let's try to grow. Let's, let's not do that again. Let's go out and, and do, do it all over again. And that's what, that's the cycles. Uh, but each time the dollar will lead, it's leads to a higher range for the dollar. Um, so anyway, that, that's just kind of how it happens right now. I think there's something like $14 trillion worth of dollar denominated debt in emerging markets. So it's pretty significant and, that's the amount of dollars that they need to find to service that debt. I mean, it's crazy. All right. Uh, let's continue with another chart here is, oh, let me post that Hong Kong dollar chart. I wonder if I wasn't coming through on Twitter spaces because there was like 12 people in there. And then all of a sudden, zero. So I hope I'm coming through still on Twitter spaces. Uh, it's kind of annoying for you guys listening on Telegram. I understand that I have to worry about Twitter spaces so much, but it is, has such potential to increase the reach of, of the show that I, oh, see, it just cut out. Stupid, stupid Twitter spaces. God damn. And I'm on the same network. I'm on everything. AW, thank you. Yeah, it's, I just, just saw that. It says it ended the stream. I didn't do anything on my end. It should have been just normal. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing wrong or if maybe I need to update my app or something, but it has been the last three times now it has totally shorted out on me and it's kind of frustrating. Thanks for letting me know that W. All right, let's get back into these charts. So I did post the Hong Kong dollar there. What about gold? Man, just the other day, all the gold bugs were just <laughs> getting really loud on Twitter because they finally broke up. And they had a higher high. 
Let me post that gold chart. I mean, gold will benefit also from the dollar being range bound, but not nearly as much as Bitcoin because, well, I don't know if you, if I think back, so gold topped in 2011, right? And then it had 10 years of a long bear market. And during that time, there was multiple periods of a stable dollar and gold did not, uh, did not continue higher. So, uh, uh, from this particular vantage point, uh, talking about a dollar as being range bound, I would say that that's not bullish for, for gold, but the increase of deflationary pressure and counterparty risk in the system, that's the underlying factor here that is bullish for gold. So Bitcoin actually has two or three different vectors of bullishness, uh, concerning the dollar where gold only has one really. So that's why gold trails. But anyways, um, did I post that? No. So there's the gold chart. All right, let's enough with that. Let's get into the DCG and stuff. I wanted to read a tweet thread by Andreas Steno. So this morning on Telegram, I went on and, you know, I was looking at a lot of news and there's some people that I really, really trust in the space. And they are like Odell, Matt Odell, and Mr. Hoddle. They're saying that they think that it's it's over for DCG, that they are insolvent, that at least Genesis is going to explode or implode. And I don't know. When I look at this, I don't see any legitimate evidence of this. I really, I really don't. Um, And so I asked my guys on, on Telegram, hey, what am I missing? And a few people had some good ideas, some good points, but nothing concrete. Nothing at all concrete. And, you know, I still maintain that Barry Silbert is not a scammer. He is not, even though he's a, he is a shit coiner, uh, he is not a fraud, you know, a fraudster. Somebody that is going to scam you like that. So... At least that is my reading of him, and I could be wrong, but I think that he is not one of the good guys, but he's not one of the bad guys for sure. So let me just read this thread by Andreas Steno. He looked into more stuff about Genesis. So here we go. Last week, I summarized the FTX implosion and its ripple-down effects, the uncovering of grossly negligent behavior by the new JP Morgan, so SBF. Uh, was the epicenter of what has become a tidal wave in crypto. Now, crypto's biggest lender, Genesis, seems to be taking in water. Back in 2013, Genesis became the first OTC Bitcoin lending desk. Now they are the largest. Its parent company, Digital Currency Group, is owned by the billionaire Barry Silbert, and they own major figures in the space Genesis, Coindesk, Foundry, Luno, and Grayscale. And they spell it with an E. <laughs> Grayscale is with an A. I don't know. I think that is um, perhaps British spelling is with an E. I don't know, but it is actually G-R-A-Y. All right. Uh, Genesis certainly wasn't going to miss out 
as the market continued its stratosphere trajectory. Just have a look at these numbers, and I'm sure you will get an idea. So this is their fourth quarter from 2021, and they had $50 billion in loan originations. Their active loans, total active loans as of the end of the year 2021 was $12.5 billion. Pretty huge. Genesis wasn't hesitate, hesitant lending out money in the pursuit of greater return. Hey, that is what your conventional bank does, albeit with greater caution, I hope, and among their debtors as three arrows capital. In fact, Genesis was the biggest creditor in AC, uh, 3AC, totaling $2.4 billion. As the loan turned sour, Genesis then filed a $1.2 billion claim against 3AC. Enter DCG. They assumed the claim and left Genesis in the clear. Okay, so that is the troublesome part that people are worried about, is that DCG lent money to Genesis. And when I was thinking of Genesis as a lender, I thought that they lent money to GBTC. Or sorry, uh, I thought the Genesis lent money to their parent company, DCG. That's what I thought. But here it's the opposite way around. DCG is owed money by Genesis. While fortune might favor the brave, another saying goes, misfortunes never come singly. The latter applied to Genesis, who hasn't, who wasn't home safe just yet. Their large exposure to Babel, who themselves took a hit, was the final straw, and in August, CEO Michael Morrow resigned. The fact that Genesis was used by numerous platforms offering tremendous returns caused implications for the entire industry. If a platform offers yield, they most likely have partnered with Genesis. Yield farming, mining, all swell when things are on the up, but now it seems reality has struck. So how does this scheme work? Number one, I hand my tokens to X. X passes them to Genesis. Genesis lends, lends my tokens to a fund, and the fund borrows from, Gen uh, from Genesis. Sound familiar? But as long as Genesis debtors can meet their obligations, then smiles all round. But things can only work for so long. Once a situation turns south, people lose their money. Businesses cashing in big time on these schemes weren't too fond of proclaiming the associated risks. Yesterday, the lending division of Genesis temporarily suspended redemption. So this is back a tweet thread from November 18th. Yesterday, the lending division of Genesis temporarily suspended redemptions and new loan originations in the wake of the FTX debunk. The unit known as Genesis Global Capital serves an institutional client base and had $2.8 in total active loans. So again, this is total active loans compared to 12.5. Now it's down to 2.8. So they're downsizing dramatically. But why all the fuzz about Genesis? Major retail accounts, as well as institutions, have felt in safer hands opting in for Genesis's, Genesis's, am I saying that right, custody service. The fact that they have served institutional investors looking to earn yield doesn't make matters better. 
So how will this end? The question really is whether DCG will be able to raise sufficient funds to bail out Genesis, as they did when 3AC went belly up. I wonder who will try to who they will try to woo. That's hard to say. Who will take on the risk given the current state in crypto? I wouldn't. All right. So that is that. Also, then Matt O'Dell had a piece out on his blog, and he was saying that he thinks nobody in the in the industry is going to bail them out. So they're in big trouble. Uh, he was saying it's probably, you know, game over for them. And Mr. Hoddle said the same thing. So I can see how that these things are commingled here. But that doesn't mean GBTC is insolvent. I go back to that. So GBTC holds their Bitcoins with formerly Zappo, now Coinbase custody. And they supposedly, they're not going to provide addresses for this Bitcoin. And nobody can really find the Bitcoin because it's probably broken up into lots of different addresses for privacy's sake and security. Um, but Coinbase re reassures the market that they have the 635,000 BTC to cover uh, GBTC. So how I, I still don't understand how this is extremely bearish for Bitcoin. Um, other than if Genesis explodes and takes uh, a whole lot of people with it, then it would be by implication, you know, by correlation, bad for Bitcoin. But Bitcoin, look, yeah, Bitcoin dropped 20% on the FTX stuff. But I go back to the thing. Since the June low, Bitcoin is only down about 5%. You know, what if it goes down another 5% from, from Genesis exploding? So I, 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 maybe it's my permeable, you know, retardation here, but I, I don't, I don't see this having a dramatic effect on the price of Bitcoin. I also think Barry Silbert is running the cleanest operation he can. Of course, they might have to bend some rules at some times, and maybe they got caught here bending rules, but I don't think that they are insolvent when it comes to GBTC and there's you know, regulations and legalities that are separating all of these different entities, right? So just because Genesis goes down doesn't mean DCG has to sell part of their Bitcoin that is held in, you know, and unwind their GBTC. Maybe they can't even do that. Maybe there's regulations that are stopping them from doing something like that. So I don't really know the intricacies of this, but of course, I'm not as bearish as a lot of people. So anyway, if you guys have other comments at the end, we'll open up the mic and you guys can make your, your voices heard. All right, let's talk about China really quick here. Just a couple more items on the list today. So this was an article I saw Michael Pettis tweet out, and I did see this headline the other day, but I didn't read the article. And the, the headline is, younger Chinese are spurning factory jobs that power the economy. Growing up in a Chinese village, Julian Zhou, Zhao, Zhu, I'm going to butcher all these names, only saw his family a few times a year when he returned for holidays from his exhausting job in a textile mill in southern Guangzhou province. For his father's generation, factory work was a lifetime out of rural was a lifeline out of rural poverty. For Zhu, 
the millions of other younger Chinese, the low pay, long hours of drudgery, and the risk of injuries are no longer sacrifices worth making. Quote, after a while, that work makes your mind numb, said the 32-year-old, who quit the production line some years ago and now makes a living selling milk formula and doing scooter deliveries for a supermarket in Shenzhen, China's southern tech hub. I couldn't stand the repetition. The rejection of grinding factory work by Zhu and other Chinese in their 20s and 30s is contributing to a deepening labor shortage that is frustrating manufacturers in China, which produces a third of the goods consumed globally. Um, I'll add in here that they don't really produce these goods. Like that, that statistic, a third of goods consumed globally, that overstates it because they get most of that, most of those materials inputs imported. So they import all of the things, they put it together, and then they ship it out. They just do that small little horizontal sliver in the value chain that is the putting the things together and then shipping it back out. It's a very shallow part of the global economy. So it's not one-third, all right? One-third of things touch Chinese shores. Yeah, I can go with that. But it's definitely not one-third of like all of the value consumed comes from value added in China. No, the value added in China has always been just a little sliver of the total value of these products. So anyway, let's continue. Factory bosses say they would produce more and faster with younger blood replacing their aging workforce. But offering the higher wages and better working conditions that younger Chinese want would risk eroding their competitive advantage. And smaller manufacturers say large investments in automation technology are either unaffordable or imprudent when rising inflation and borrowing costs are curbing demand in China's key export markets. More than 80% of Chinese manufacturers face labor shortages, ranging from hundreds to thousands of workers this year, equivalent to 10 to 30% of their workforce. The survey by CIIC Consulting showed China's Ministry of Education forecasts a shortage of nearly 30 million manufacturing workers by 2025, larger than Australia's population. Um, I'll just remind, remind you, dear listeners, that there is no such thing as a labor shortage. You just have to raise the wage. It's an imbalance due to artificially low wages. So you need to raise the wage if you have a labor shortage. Um, on paper, uh, labor is in no short supply. Roughly 18% of Chinese aged 16 to 24 are unemployed. This year, a cohort of 10.8 million graduates entered a job market that, besides manufacturing, is very subdued. China's economy, pummeled by COVID-19 restrictions. See, I love this. They say by COVID-19 restrictions. So when they talk about zero COVID, of course, then it's obvious the restrictions, the government action is what pummeled the economy. But when you talk about the West or when the West talks about itself, it's always that COVID-19 did this, not the restrictions. So I think that's, that's a very interesting distinction here. 
a property market downturn and regulatory crackdowns on tech and other private industries faces its lowest growth in decades. Klaus Zenkel, who chairs the European Chamber of Commerce in South China, moved to the region about two decades ago when university graduates were less than one-tenth this year's numbers and the economy as a whole was about 15 times smaller in current U.S. dollar terms. He runs a factory in Shenzhen with about 50 workers who make magnetically shielded rooms used by hospitals for MRI screenings and other procedures. Zenkel said China's breakneck economic growth in recent years had lifted the aspirations of younger generations who now see his line of work as increasingly unattractive. Quote, if you are young, it's much easier to do this job, climbing up the ladder, doing some machinery work, handle tools, and so on. But most of our installers are aged 50 to 60, he said. Soon but later, sooner or later, we need to get more young people, but it's very difficult. Applicants will have a quick look and say, no, thank you. It's not for me. The National Development and Reform Commission, China's macroeconomic management agency, and the Education and Human Resources Ministries did not reply to requests for comment. Modern Times. Manufacturers say they have three main options to tackle the labor market mismatch. Raise raise wages. (laughs) Number one, uh, sacrifice profit margins to increase wages. Ding, 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 ding. See, that's once you understand that that's the solution, then you'd be, well, that's not sustainable. Of course, none of this is sustainable. You can't fix China without crashing its economy. Period. China's over people. Uh, the number two would be invest more in automation or hop on the decoupling wave set off by the heightening rival- rivalry between China and the West and move to cheaper pastures such as Vietnam or India. Well, that's a good good solution too. But all these those choices are difficult to implement. Liu, who runs a factory in the electric battery supply chain, has invested in more advanced production equipment with better digital measurements. He said his older workers struggle to keep up with the faster gear or read the data on the screens. Wow. Liu, who like other factory chiefs, declined to give his full name so he could speak freely about Chinese economic, the Chinese economic slowdown, said he tried luring younger workers with 5% higher wages, but was given a cold shoulder. Did you try 10% higher wages? It's like with Charlie Chaplin, said Lou, describing his workers' performance, alluding to the scene in a 1936 movie, Modern Times, about the anxieties of U.S. industrial workers during the Great Depression. The main character, Little Tramp, played by Chaplin, fails to keep up with tightening bolts on a conveyor belt. These Chinese policymakers have emphasized automation and industrial upgrading as a solution to an aging workforce. The country of 1.4 billion on the brink of a demographic downturn accounted for half of the robot installations in 2021, up 44% year on year, and the International Federation of Robotics said. Um, Just a side note, I see this all over the place, 1.4 billion, 1.4 billion. The newest census estimates are that it's 1.3 or lower. They have overcounted their population by 100 million people. That means their demographic downturn is a demographic collapse. 
They have overcounted babies born in China for decades. And I'll add this, that, you know, during the one child policy, one reason why this demographic downturn is actually a complete and utter disaster collapse is because during the one child child policy, they had mostly boy babies. So they have this huge, huge, like when you want to measure potential fertility of a population, you don't measure the number of men because men can make lots of babies, basically unlimited, right? Where women is who you need to count. And there's far fewer women of birthing age compared to men. It is, it is a disaster, guys. Total disaster. But automation has its limits. Dottie, a general manager at a stainless steel factory, a treatment factory in the city of Foshan, has automated product packaging and work clean uh, surface cleaning. Sorry, let me read that again. Has automated, oh my God, has automated product packaging and work surface cleaning, but says a similar fix for other functions would be too costly. Yet young workers are vital to keep the production moving. Quote, our products are really heavy and we need people to transfer them from one processing procedure to the next. It's labor intensive in hot temperatures and we have difficulty hiring for these procedures, she said. Brett, a manager at a factory making video game controllers and keyboards in Dongzhang, said orders have halved in recent months and that many of his peers were moving to Vietnam and Thailand. He is, quote, just thinking about how to survive this moment, he said, adding he expected to lay off 15% of his 200 workers, even as he still wanted younger muscle on his assembly lines. All right, so that's um, that's where I'm going to end this article. Pretty much China's in big, big trouble. They crammed, this is what Peter Zion has said, that they crammed pretty much 200 years of industrialization into 40 that is complete with the demographic cycle so you know as you as a a society enters an industrialization period it is experiences a high boom in population because a decrease in child mortality but slowly over several generations say a hundred years time slowly but surely women start having fewer children and so the entire cycle this industrialization cycle that happened you know in britain and the u.s now and other western countries it took 200 years to really work its way through china has squeezed it into 40. it's gone from population boom to population collapse in 40 years it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And I think that this China thing will turn into the single largest like economic event. Like when we look back in 100 years or 200 years back at this time, people will say the reason why we went into this multipolar world, the reason why we had this economic downturn globally was because of China. Now I think China is a result of the form of the money and credit saturation in the world 
boosted China. Now it is pulling China down. But that's, I think, what they will write about. That's how big of an event this is. China's boom and collapse is going to be written about for hundreds of years. It is going to be the main event when people look back at this time. It is just so dramatic. I mean, just think, their economy has grown 15 times in a single person's lifetime, maybe 20 times. They've 20X'd their economy in one person's lifetime. What happens when that goes away? What happens when they divide it by 20? Massive pain, massive death and starvation and everything. I mean, it is going to be extremely dramatic, guys. I, I mean, ugh, I, I, every time I read something, I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be bigger than I thought. This is going to be bigger than I thought. So anyway, the last thing, let's just touch on. Well, that's 40 minutes. I've been going on 40 minutes. I'm kind of pissed off about Twitter spaces, so I'm going to cut it there. I will link. I did link to the Texas work group on blockchain matters. Uh, I posted that in the Telegram so you guys can read through that. There's some good stuff in there. I mean, they do say blockchain. It's all about blockchain and digital assets and DAOs, but a majority of what they want from regulators from regulators is good. So some of the wording they use is not the best, but uh, you know, they, they are asking for better regulations. So anyway, okay. Opening up to guys on telegram. If you guys have anything to say, Oh, we got quite a few people in here today, probably because Twitter spaces isn't working. I, I have, I have one thing. Um, What's up? Just, just about China. I, I think you're one thing you don't realize, I think is that during that one child policy, I don't believe that, applied to the villages and there's a lot of areas with a huge population in China that are uh, not really accounted for in the economy and they can just pull people from those villages in that area the village might collapse but they'll pull in the working people there and not affect the economy it, it, it again it might completely decimate those villages and the, the people from the very poor areas but they'll be able to pull people out and they'll be able to lessen the blow that way. And they'll be able to get women from those areas. Although the population will, will go down. Maybe it will be half a billion instead of a billion. But um, it really wouldn't affect the economy. And I think they want to lower the population anyway. That's, that's just a, sort of my thoughts on how it, it won't be as bad as you think. Well, hopefully, I mean, it's not as bad as I think because I have a pretty dystopian view of it. So I hope that is correct. But I, I mean, none of the stuff that I've read about the population and the census stuff, none of the stuff that I've heard has said anything about any sort of discrepancy like that. It's possible that there are a bunch of human resources in the countryside that they can pull into into the cities, but I haven't seen that anywhere. So if you'd have some of those numbers, you can always post them um, in the, in the group. Yeah, I'll try to see. I haven't, yeah, I really haven't looked into this in a long time, but I, I'll try to see what, what um, percentage of the population is really uh, considered like countryside people that don't affect the economy. And, you know, if it's just factory jobs, I don't think that's an issue. And if it's you need women, they can pull them in. And 
but but I do agree a lot of a lot of jobs are going to go to other countries manufacturing jobs so I'll, I'll I'll poke around and see what I can find cool cool all right Raphael let me make sure you can speak here okay so um how would you um short China in a profitable <laughs> profitable way oh man um how would I short China I would I don't know I I there are emerging market ETFs that you can look at uh you can short those um you can there's there's probably China ETFs as well that you can short um but I would think of it like longing domestic stuff or longing other countries so as China goes down you know and we have this shift away from deglobalization we're going to have a lot of these things that were done in China they're going to be done elsewhere most likely nearer to like big population centers. So um, whether you're in North America or South America, there's going to be places where you start seeing these kind of manufacturing jobs come in. And that would be a place to long in your own local domestic type uh, economy. So that's maybe how uh, a good way to play it. Go ahead, Vincent. You got to unmute. There we go. Hello. Do you hear me now? Yes, sir. Good question. So uh, do I think that deglobalization means inflation going up? In some things, yes. And I think that we've lived kind of in this globalization bubble of really cheap goods. Um, if you go back in history and you look at like how much people spent on food as a proportion of their income or how much they spent on housing, you know, shelter as a proportion of their income, it has come down dramatically uh, in the last 50 years. And so I think that some of these necessities, some of these basics in life will get more expensive, but that is not inflation. It's actually deflation. Um, so it, it's really weird when we talk about this by using the terms inflation and deflation to mean prices, because prices can go up and down for many, many reasons. Inflation and deflation are specifically about the amount of money that's out there, the supply of money. And in a deglobalized era or system, you have less credit in the world, right? So people aren't going to be, um, American banks aren't going to be lending to Chinese companies. And Chinese companies aren't going to be lending to Indian companies or whatever the case is. There's going to be much less credit floating around the world because we're in a deglobalized period uh, deglobalization period so that amount of credit shrinking is deflation and the result of that is going to be higher prices and in a weird roundabout counterintuitive way that is what the result is going to be so um yeah i think prices for many things will go up but also we can't discount that our tastes will change. Our tastes will change. Our values will change. Our social structure will change. People will go more into savings. People will live more humbly. People won't be um, doing lots of trips across the world or you know, people flying across the world for vacation. 
They're going to stay locally for vacation. They're going to go to their local mountains instead of going to the mountains in the Alps or something in Europe. So there is um, our habits will change. And so once you have, once you say, okay, prices will probably go up in certain things. However, our tastes and our subjective values as a society will also change. Now we can't really tell what's going to happen to prices because something that might have gone up actually loses demand because our tastes have changed. Now, when we have basics like food and energy, those things, I don't think there's any way to get around it. They will probably go higher depending where you are in the world. In, in, uh, the, in the United States, one reason why I am so bullish on the United States is for that reason food and energy. The basics that will go up, we know will go up in price, are uh, very plentiful in the United States. So as, as a region of the world that I'm most bullish on, it's the United States because of the geography, not because of, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm an American, I, I like this country, but uh, it's it's for geographic reasons and economic reasons that I'm bullish on the United States. But there will be lots of other places. I think Argentina is going to be extremely successful in the future. I think there's going to be some places in um, Europe that will be uh, better off than other places in Europe. So there will be some bright spots in Europe. Uh, I'm I'm specifically, I like France. I also like uh, the low countries that I think they will do fairly well. England, if they can pull their head out their butts, they can they can do well as well. Um, North Africa, I think, is going to come back into onto the world stage because I see European interests shifting back into the Mediterranean for those energy resources. And if you think about like agricultural resources as well, you know. Uh, the Mediterranean and Europe relied a lot on like farming from North Africa. So food and energy will drive interest back down towards the Mediterranean, I think. So North Africa could be a good place, uh, have a good economy in the future, um, things like that. I, that's that's how I look at the world and how I uh, try to forecast into the future. But it's it's very, uh, we need to make sure that we understand that deflation can actually cause rate uh, prices to rise. And that's a lot of what I think that we're seeing out there. I hope that makes sense. All right. Anybody else? All right. Well, I'm going to cut it there for today, guys. Oh, admin note. I might not be doing uh fed watch tomorrow. We got to see, you know, if you have been following people on Twitter from Bitcoin magazine, they're downsizing a little bit. And also the producer of the live stream is going on vacation for Thanksgiving. So uh, we might, might not have an episode tomorrow, but I'll, I'll make sure I let you guys know uh, by tomorrow morning if we're going to be a go or not for 3 p.m. Eastern with Bitcoin Magazine. So, all right, that's going to do it today, guys. Thanks for joining. Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Marcus. Check out BitcoinandMarcus.com and I will see you on the next one. Bye.